This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammie here. Uh, it has been a week. I want to, first of all, thank you. My book came out last week, and so many of you showed up for the Zoom events that I've been hosting, and so many of you posted pictures of it. So many of you have been ordering it through indie booksellers. You can still get it. It's called Save Yourself, a title I cannot believe that my book has right now. Um, I really appreciate the support, and hey, if you already did buy it, you could review it on Goodreads. It's really strange to have canceled book tour and to um, have sort of a canceled income, so it would mean a lot to me if you continue to support this project, and you can also get it as an audiobook or as an ebook. Whew! Today on the podcast, I have a chat with Elise Fritchell, who is an epidemiologist that wrote in to us to talk, wanting to talk about the work that she is doing right now in the, in addressing and preventing um, the spread of COVID-19. It's a shorter than usual conversation because we're both exhausted. And I also think there was some good information in it. And I really appreciate Elise reaching out. Thank you also to Jordan who set this Zoom conversation with Elise up and made it happen, and to Sierra, who is still working to produce the podcast remotely. Thank you all so much for listening. Enjoy this chat. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Will you introduce yourself? I always have guests introduce themselves. Sure. My name is Elise Fritchell. I'm an epidemiologist in the clinical setting. I'm technically the best Elise in pinball. And <laughs> I'm getting interviewed by freaking Cameron Esposito. What, what do you mean you're technically the best Elise in pinball? Okay, so um, if you, you can go to competitive pinball leagues and you get scored. And since I have a pretty rare first name, um, I'm ranked on an international pinball site and, and I'm the best. <laughs> wow. That is, that is exactly the type of joy we need right now. <laughs> I'm very bad at pinball. So, um, I definitely know you're also the best in pinball on this current zoom conversation. So, if, <laughs> you know, if that helps at all, yeah. um, I want to talk about, uh, why you got in touch and what's happening right now in your life. First of all, could you tell me where you are geographically? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm currently in an office in Ojai, um, but my job is in infection prevention. So I'm an epidemiologist and I work for a healthcare system. Um, and I'm based in California, but have had experience in Texas and, and in networks with people nationwide and worldwide. And Ojai, just for folks who might not be as familiar, because I live in Los Angeles, that's a it's a smaller town sort of in a valley setting between some mountains, maybe. Is it an hour and a half from LA? Yeah, I would say so. I'm mostly in Ventura, but um, 
this office is really quiet, so I thought I would hang out over here. Yeah, fair enough. So what is going on right now in your work life? So it's pretty intense. I would say for me, like last week, I worked 84 hours. Well, I worked beyond 84. I just stopped keeping count at 84. Um, We're dealing with not quite the surge of patients that we're expecting, but it's coming. Uh, We're dealing with, and I think hospitals nationwide are dealing with personal protective equipment or PPE shortages. So what do you do? How do you make sure that everybody is safe? Um, That is a huge monumental issue. And if a hospital near you isn't dealing with it now, they are going to in the near future. It's, it's severe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, you know, and again, I, I, this isn't like meant to, well, here, so you reached out to Query actually, which is great. Um, And part of the reason that I wanted to have you on is because I do feel like you know, just for myself, I know I'm having a really hard time finding what is the reliable information about like multiple, like what's happening globally, what's happening nationally, and then what's happening locally. And it seems like, um, you know, the way that the president is approaching this is by really limiting information. And so that's not a place to go. You know, it doesn't like, it doesn't seem like the briefings from the White House are the place to go. I've been using sort of a cobbled together mix of uh, the daily from NPR. Um, I've also been using the news section on Twitter because it seems to like include um, some other, because it, because the algorithm also prioritizes Los Angeles and it seems to be a good way to figure out what's happening locally close to me. You know, I've been using things like the LA Times and the New York Times, but it just does seem like one of the biggest things going on right now is that it's really hard to get information about what might happen and what is currently happening. So is that, is that, do you feel like that's, what is that like on your end? Do you feel like you have information? I feel, I don't think anyone has enough information with COVID specifically But I do think that the information that we have, I mean, we're doing what we can. Every county has a health department with a website you can go to, and it'll have local stats. Um, Sometimes there are town hall meetings or calls you can call into. Uh, Some of it is for the public. Some of it isn't. Um, I do think that we're in an age of Twitter, and that has been monumentally helpful. Um, I know when I worked with Ebola, um, when that got announced, it was announced um, to the hospital and some employees and the health department. And they said, you know, do not disseminate this info, but info gets disseminated. It was on Twitter within five minutes. And then they, you know, officially announced it maybe 15 to 30 minutes later. So um, when was that? Like, if you can just give me a, I, I feel like I'm like out of space and time. Yeah, that was in 2014. Okay. And so I don't even think I know what an epidemiologist does. Like, I don't even think I have any bare bones understanding. So anything you can say, like, what is your daily job like? Like, what are you doing right now for those more than 84 hours? Yeah. So my job right now is a little different than it usually is. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of surveillance generally. So lots of number crunching and spreadsheets. I'm looking 
when not in, in a COVID situation, um, clinically at hospital-acquired infections, so bloodstream infections or, um, you know, any kind of infectious disease. Uh, so we're tracking that. We're seeing what might have come in through the hospital versus what is coming in through the community and how we can intervene, proper Oh, that's really interesting. You, yeah. you work specifically in studying hospital-acquired infections. That's what you just I said. I do. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting because um, I, think, I think I have some understanding of what you're – well, I'll talk about like why, uh, you know, sort of my positioning right here right now is that um, <clears throat> I have throughout my life been somebody who is like a fairly – a very healthy person. I have had um, surgeries for things like I had a weak eye muscle. I had a broken bone that was surgically set. I had um, cartilage repaired on my knee. My interaction with the medical system was really through sort of emergency medicine or like surgical medicine, you know, which is so different than like, than sort of an infectious diseases perspective. And I only know that because um, my girlfriend is somebody who has, who is immunosuppressed. She has an autoimmune disease and takes the autoimmune disease, um, gives her a natural immunosuppression. And then she also takes immunosuppressant drugs to be able to feel her best. So when I, you know, last year she got pneumonia um, due to complications from the common cold and walking through that process with her, you know, we went to four different hospitals. There was a lot of advocacy needed on her behalf to make sure to coordinate between her regular doctors who are specialists and the folks in the hospital system that she was in at the time. And so um, she recently moved to LA. And one of the first things that she did moving here was like, try to find a network around a hospital um, that's local as opposed to, you know, keeping her network that that had previously been in New York. It ju- she just pointed out to me a couple weeks ago as we were like sort of prepping for as we, the coronavirus on the horizon, we knew it might affect our household differently you know, she was like, you know, here's how you get the information for my um, rheumatologist. Here's who my, you know, gastroenterologist is, blah, blah, blah. Some of these people I've even met. And then she was like, you know, I'm realizing you don't have a doctor. And I was like, (laughs) 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 I was like, yeah, you're, you know, you're right. Um, So I give you all that background because when you're talking about a a hospital acquired infection and how that interacts currently with our moment, one of the, this is like my understanding is that one of the, one of the most dangerous places is the hospital right now, because that's where there's going to be the highest concentration of folks affected and and infected um, with coronavirus. So if you could talk a little bit about whether or not my perception is at all the reality. Yeah. I mean, hospitals aren't a place you, you enjoy hanging out at, but we, <laughs> we, we definitely do our best to make the environment safe. So I'm all about patient safety. Um, we've been, and I think a lot of hospitals have been implementing things to keep coronavirus at bay. Now, you know, we're just, we're ramping up. Um, there are emergency levels Um, there's something, and this is probably too in the weeds, but there's something called an incident command system. So anytime there's an emergency, a bunch of people get together, 
um, from different parts of the organization and say, all right, here's how we're going to triage patients. We're going to have them screened outside instead of within the hospital. Yeah. We're going to keep those symptomatic people in a, in a certain location, give them whatever services we can in a spot where we can decontaminate really quickly. Um, and just every single part of the process requires a team. Like, how do you move a patient from outside the hospital to the fourth floor you know, or the fifth floor in some, some other ward, like every part requires a, this big group effort. And it's, it's incredible. I think hospitals have done this in ways. And now we're learning new things about coronavirus all the time. Mm-hmm. COVID-19, I, sh- I should say, um, caused by SARS-CoV-2, of course. Um, and we're doing our best to, to stay, you know, it's hard to say that anybody is ahead of it at this point. I think that we were so we were coming from behind from the get-go with our limited testing. I think that that really hurt us as a nation. And so now it's it's hard to know what the burden of disease was from the beginning. And right. now we're seeing more uh, cases. And as testing becomes more readily available, you're going to see a jump in cases again. And it's hard to know if these are new infections, if these, you know, where are we at right now? It's, it's a question that we all have in the healthcare world and everywhere else. Yeah, I have a couple follow-ups on that. First, before I forget, I just want to ask you to be an, epi- an epidemiologist, what, like, what are you, what are you degreed in? What, what did you study to get yeah. to where you are? I don't so, even know that. Sounds like maybe math. Sounds like there's some math. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of math. Um, so I went to college and got my undergrad in, uh, it was human biology with a focus in pathogenesis and immunity. Quite honestly, like at the beginning, I was like, that sounds awesome, but didn't know much about it. And then took some lab courses and fell in love. Um, and after that, I got my master's in public health and epidemiology and was on the path toward getting a PhD in epidemiology and thought, I like making money. I'm just going to do some work <laughs> first. <laughs> and then I've just kept, I've just kept working so far. So um, yeah. yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of epis with masters, with PhDs, um, but that's generally where people go. Lots of statistics um, and I don't know. Lots of- so it's like a stats-based job. I mean, there, obviously there's a medical understanding, but, but the, but what you're coming from is, like you said, spreadsheets and stats, which, which again, I think is really interesting um, to think about who might be involved in trying to predict what's going on and try to address it. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting combination of behind the scenes stats and then interacting. I, I do interact with patients sometimes mm-hmm. and the public and um, working on projects, seeing um you know, what outcomes you, you can have. Like it's, it's a job that makes me feel like I'm doing something out there. And it's a time in the world where you, I need to feel like I'm, I'm doing something positive in order to just make it <laughs> these days. Sure. I hear you. Um, but yeah, um, I would say, so maybe more into the background of Epi, um, the link between smoking causing lung cancer, epidemiologists involved in that. So wow. 
Yeah, if you see things with like, here are the odds of this or your risk of that and a, and a number attached to that, epidemiology right there. <laughs> That's you. Um, got it. You know, I, and I do think I know a little bit about um, what you're talking, what you were just describing in terms of a hospital system. Again, this is like, this is, this is just um, anecdotal. Like it's not, it's, but this is what I saw this week. So this week, um, uh, Katie, my girlfriend was experiencing chest pains and shortness of breath after a few weeks of like, she'd had a low grade fever on and off. And um, finally, when the chest pain and shortness of breath got to a certain degree, her doctor suggested we go get a chest x-ray at urgent care. And when we got to urgent care, you know, what I saw there was so different than something I've seen in the past. There was um, like a uniformed guard, which I've never seen at an urgent care. Um, but I think that that it makes sense in a climate where people are having a lot of heightened emotions. Yeah. Um, there was a nurse that greeted us at the door with hand sanitizer for Katie, who was the only person that was allowed into the waiting room. The waiting room was empty and I waited in the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Katie went in and was seen by a, a doctor who then eventually got me um, because they decided to ambulance transfer her to an ER. But just that like just starting at that picture, which is a very different vibe. Like in urgent care is usually like the vibe in there is like everybody's coughing all around you and yeah. not covering their mouths. Like right. like the urgent, you know, and urgent care usually has that vibe. Um, but it was so, it was such a different level of like caution slash efficiency. Yeah. And is that sort of the, some of the stuff that you've been, um, suggesting or planning like is that is that where that where that is coming from like those those steps that are that are being taken 100 percent, yes yeah and I think these are things that epidemiologists have been saying for a long time you know wash your damn hands right do the thing um disinfecting uh coronavirus um or SARS-CoV-2 um can be disinfected or um wiped off of surfaces very easily um, we just have to, you know, implement those measures. I also, think- what should you use? Can I just ask this question? Do you know the answer to this question? Because I'm sure there's listeners who also would like to keep themselves safe. What should you use to disinfect? Yeah. So when you're using hand sanitizer, you want to make sure that it has at least 60% alcohol, greater. Um, a lot of them have around 62%, and that's fine. Um and a lot of disinfectants, you can use a bleach, uh, diluted bleach solution. A lot of those like Clorox bleach wipes, totally good. Um, our different hospital systems have different products. And if, you're, if you aren't sure, go onto the website. Pretty much every disinfectant website that I know of will say, we'll have an FAQ section and it'll say, oh yeah, this is effective against um, coronaviruses, because we've known about coronaviruses for a long time. This just happens to be a novel type. Got um, it. Yeah. That's that's helpful because I also think, you know, again, it's like these guidelines. There, it the, <laughs> in a different world, there could just sort of be guidelines that were coming down that said, like, you know, get this kind of cleaning product and this kind of sanitizer. And I think we're seeing some of that, but it, it's again, it's not like coming from a uh, central place, which would be right. so helpful. 
Right. Yeah, I know. And I, you know, people, I think there was a run on alcohol, uh, like mm-hmm. Tito's vodka and things like that. I know my mom was thinking, ah, bless my mom. Uh, so she was thinking about making her own hand sanitizer by buying some vodka. Like, buy, she's a very tiny woman, like buying this gigantic cart full of vodka. And I'm like, mom, hold on. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't think she actually did it, but um, she, she's plenty stocked as is. So, um, so what if the hand sanitizer and, you know, Lysol wipes or whatever are sold out near you? So, Wash your hands? Yes. Soap and water is great. Make sure that, as everyone has heard from the CDC, at least 20 seconds is the, the standard. And that's what people have been saying in hospitals forever and ever. But, um, you know, they say sing happy birthday twice, which is super boring. So just find a better song <laughs> and sing that twice. <laughs> and then, oh, go ahead. Oh, so I would talk about hand hygiene to, to new hires and things like that. Um, and I would say, you know, you could use these popular songs. You know, these are about 20 seconds in length. And then I would rickroll them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that there is a large group of people, particularly younger people, who don't know what rickrolling is. So they would just look at me and they're like, who is Rick Astley? And uh, it- Well, this is honestly something that we need to be talking about as a country is rickrolling. <laughs> Bringing it back and making sure that it survives. <laughs> So I want to also, let me ask you this question. You're not supposed to touch your face. You know that better than anyone. How the fuck does one not touch their face? Is it just mind over matter? Explain to me how we are supposed to do this. Well, I think in a hospital setting, what we would like to do is have face shields, right? Mm -hmm. So you're like physically unable to touch your face. Um, And you're also protected against uh, droplet nuclei and all that stuff. Um, and that is a thing that I know plenty of hospitals are in short supply. So there are great 3d printing options that people are making and sending to hospitals and please keep doing the thing. If anyone listening, um, has a 3d printer, please reach out to hospitals. Local hospitals are in great need of this. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think just being aware, I, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's that, hard. that actually is like that was that was really a helpful answer. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! So I also, so then I'll like walk through the rest of this experience and maybe just use that as a a guiding, as a guide to ask some further questions. Um, So 
you know, after Katie was, first of all, Katie was transferred in an ambulance and the EMTs were wearing, you know, plastic um, suits over their clothes and, you know, masks and um, eye, co- like goggles, mm-hmm. which is something that I hadn't previously seen. And I wasn't allow- allowed to be in the ambulance because they were limiting um, our interaction at yeah. that point. They thought that they knew that something was going on in her lungs. They wanted to go you know, bring her to the ER. And so, you know, I'm just noticing that as being different. And then once we got to the ER, she was brought into the COVID ward, which again, you can't have any visitors there. Um, And that vibe, you know, I saw there was like a, what looked like a military grade tent set up outside, which I'm assuming would be the waiting room as, you know, if things continue to progress. And then there was a very empty inside the ER waiting room. And then a really separate um, area for folks dealing with, you know, this disease versus what what might be happening elsewhere. And so that's something else that we'll continue to see is sort of that just felt so different to me is one section of the hospital being so isolated from like anybody else that might be having a baby or like some other thing that would bring you in through the ER. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is an isolating experience for everyone in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, With disasters like Ebola and COVID, uh, walking into the hospital is kind of a creepy experience because there just aren't many people at all. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That felt like very, uh, that was very noticeable um, right away. And so, because uh, Katie's high risk, she asked multiple doctors and then eventually got a doctor who would provide a test. They were going to discharge her with no test and just a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you could talk a little bit about, because you mentioned this earlier, like what role testing would potentially have played and maybe the role that you think testing will play now. Yeah. I will tell you, testing is a frustration of everybody in the healthcare field. At for a very long time through roughly the end of February, the only way you could get a test, um, the only way I know that we could get a test is through the CDC. So someone mm-hmm. would meet a very strict set of criteria, the CDC would run the test, and then you'd wait a little while for that positive result or negative result. Um, but that meant that a ton of people were not getting tested. So. And that's the end of February. We haven't even gone a full month since then. So in that span of time, how many people were infected? We were still congregating, going to big parties like that. And um, there were some issues with um, the test kits that, and so those got recalled. And then, you know, toward the beginning of March is where, you know, other local health departments, and not all of them, just some, were starting to test a little more. Still with that same criteria, oh man, if if it's a patient, we really want to test the hospitalized ones and, you know, we'll try and get to the others if we can. But, you know, I think everybody felt felt extremely frustrated over that. I want to stop you for one tiny second before you continue, just because I feel like if somebody might be following this from a cobbled together, the point that 
the reasoning testing would have been valuable at that point when we were still congregating, the moment you were talking about end of February, is because if somebody is not tested and released back into the population, if we don't know who's sick, we don't know who to essentially stay away from. We don't know who are the carriers that should like stay home. And so that continues the spread. Is that is that the yes. sort of thought there, right? Just not knowing who it is um, does, means you can't, that, that other people can't be protected. Right. And I even think now with all of the information we have and uh, there's still people who, you know, they've recognized that COVID-19 is a thing. And when they feel it might be, you know, a little bit of a, um, a dry cough or just minor symptoms, they might say, well, I think it might be allergies or I think it might be this or that. Um, kind of a sense of denial or, you know, maybe I'm a healthcare worker, but I really need to do my job. So I don't know what this is, but hopefully it'll go away. Um, I think that that denial is something that we need to move past because there are people who are getting exposed and we need to make sure that everyone is safe. That's a really good point. And I also think that some of that denial, I mean, because Katie and I, you know, spoke about this even after she came home, it's like she has this diagnosis that like this is what the doctor said based on her her symptoms and we're waiting for test results. They said test results were super delayed. And then the doctor also said to us, by the way, there's a 30% chance that if it's negative, that that's a false negative. So, you know, you, you might get a negative test result and still have it. And I think for the two of us, it was then, you know, difficult as a household to be like, wait, so this just means yes, you know, like, like, I think that that's how, you know, we're supposed to take it. And, you know, by the way, she's also sick. But I think that it when, you know, another thing that's happening is like when the, when there isn't necessarily clear communication, but what is being broadcast are the most severe cases, which by the way, those should get attention, but it's, we're talking about respirators, which is, that should happen and, and ventilators that should be, that should be part of it. But then I think it makes it harder for somebody who like just does have a cough to think that they might have the same thing that that person who's right. on a ventilator has, you know, yeah. that's a complicated part of making healthcare essentially the decision of the individual as opposed to the healthcare system, you know, like as opposed to doctors being able to test just like idiots at our houses trying to figure out what to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's difficult in general sometimes to think about your health in terms of a community too. Like it's more than just you, what you're doing by staying inside is helping so many others, just like vaccination. Right. Um, and there's still, you know, anti-vaxxers not to, you know, <laughs> bring <laughs> that talk, in. <laughs> we can talk shit on anti-vaxxers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that, that brings up a point. I've also seen discussed a lot of places that I'm sure y'all are, you know, openly dealing with, which is what happens when something, what happens when a global pandemic hits the United States specifically with our culture of, um, self-reliance sort of intersection with self intersecting with self-importance. I mean, we have a, we also have a nationwide epidemic of school shootings and yeah. the same day that those shootings happen, we often hear from gun rights advocates. So like that we, we, 
we, that's who we are as a culture. So obviously understanding something like community health might not be so easy for folks yeah. raised here. It's difficult. And there are a lot of things um, that I think we can work on as a nation. Um, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be a taboo thing to wear a mask if, if you're sick, you know, provided that masks are available now is a, a bad time. But, right. Um, and I think that that's not really a thing that, you know, prior to now was, was embedded in the culture. Um, and that's such a good point. Actually, I just want to say again, it's just anecdotally, like because of Katie's immunosuppression, we both wear masks when we travel and have for a long time. And she has worn masks sometimes in larger public gatherings when she wasn't feeling well um, because she didn't want additional complications. So like I've seen how people look at folks that have that going on and, and maybe, and maybe that's now different. Um, but, you know, yeah, we aren't necessarily, and we also have no paid sick leave, like many jobs. So it's a complicated time. What are you hearing about that specific issue, about the way that paid sick leave, I mean, even for doctors, like, is that something that folks are worried about in terms of keeping their jobs? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that in physician culture, especially if you're a resident, it's kind of a hierarchy. And when you're a resident, you are working crazy long hours and you are not allowed to be sick. You just show up. Um, and I think we're trying to get away from that, especially right now. Um, and we say, you know, if you're feeling any symptoms, you know, we obviously have screening, but don't even get to the doors. Stay home. Uh, we're going we're gonna to pay you um, as long as we can. Um, so we don't want that to be a barrier for at least our healthcare workers. Um, but it is a barrier for a lot of people. And um, it may become a barrier for, <laughs> for even my industry in the future. But yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's certainly concerning. What about you specifically? How are, like, what are you doing right now to protect your own health? So, I mean, tiny things. I, I'm not a big makeup person in any way, but I don't wear anything because I don't really want to touch my face and mm. or rub my eyes or do any of these things. Um, and I know people who wear contacts who are wearing glasses more often. Um, but again, if you're doing proper hand hygiene, you know, you should be fine. Um, other things that I'm doing, it's really hard. I feel like I have a lot on my shoulders. I'm trying to protect a ton of people and make sure a bunch of processes in place are in place. I have a bunch of people calling. Um, I'm on, I'm on call 24 seven, 365. So I get calls at two in the morning and I, I take them and I really haven't, I haven't taken time really to just relax. <laughs> to like hang out with my cat, you know, and de-stress. And so I think I'm going to reach a point where that's, I mean, it probably already is unhealthy. Like I'm starting to laugh at really dumb things and then <laughs> silly things. Like, I hear you. I hear <laughs> you. I hear you. And I'm like, this is me. But uh, I dropped a, a, a box of fully made macaroni and cheese. You know, like I had like the pan and was about to like, or put it in a bowl and then dropped it on the floor. And 
I tell you, friend, I cried very hard. Um, so do you, have, do you have folks in your life that you're staying in connected with and, support, and getting some support from right now? I mean, is are like, obviously you're telling me you're overworked and like, I yeah. hear you. And I also hear that, you know, you're, you're feeling like this is the right decision to continue to make because of the impact that you can have. And do you have folks that are, are giving you support during this tough time? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I do have um, a good a good network. Um, I, I'm one of those people who likes to take everything on and I don't like to burden other people with my things. And so I think the people who are who are really close to me know that and they're like, hey, hey. Um, but I, even people in the in the hospital where I work, they'll just like drop some food by me because I don't have time to grab food. Um, or I don't have time to just take, take a few minutes, like walk around and then come back. Um, so, you know, just people checking up and saying like, how's it going? Uh, means, means so much, right? Like I, sometimes I forget, I'm, I'm so busy doing all of these things, um, at work that I forget like, oh, you know, I, there, there are people in my life who send like pictures of their pets and I'm like, oh, oh, look at them. They're so loose. They're great and wonderful. And I, I do need to step back and, and um, you know, remember that there's a life outside of, of this too, but, you know, invest my, my whole um, being into all this at the same time. Yeah. And that you're a person, you know, I mean, I certainly can relate to feeling that it's okay to give and not necessarily okay to ask for things. But I'm trying so hard during this time to like receive support. It I am not great at it. Um, it's something I'm working on. But I but I do think that um, we all deserve it, you know. So I'm trying to remind myself of that and allow other people to be kind to me. Um, I also, you know, I will say I am. Um, I'm pretty freaking tired because of the last couple of nights and I feel so glad that we got a chance to talk and I might have this be a shorter episode to go give you some time to breathe and give myself some time to breathe. I'm looking at the time and we've been talking for like about a half hour and I feel like that feels to me like enough of your time. <laughs> um, but I want to ask before we sign off, well, first of all, I want to thank you for reaching out. Oh yeah. I think we got some like really good information here and I, and is there anything that you think I missed that you would like listeners to hear right now? Ugh. I know it's like a very tough question. Cause like, how is your brain even still functioning? <laughs> um, not really at the moment. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me and, you know, providing this, this platform, this space. Um, I, you know, I appreciate it and I love what you're doing for oh, our community. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, same. I'm so glad that thank you for doing the job you're doing. Thank oh. you. Yeah. And um, it was a pleasure to talk with you. And before I'm going to ask you before you head back into your life to shout out a queero, which is a person, place or thing that made you feel like you could do the stuff and be the person you are today. Can you shout out a queero for me? Yes. Can I shout two out? Yes, you can shout two out. Okay. Uh, one of them is a doctor named uh, Sarah Josephine Baker, who was the most supreme badass lady that I did not know about for a really long time. She sat on top of Typhoid Mary 
to keep her. <laughs> yeah, I know. Basic, like public health, badass uh, <laughs> physician who saved a bunch of babies in New York City. And she has this rich history. She wrote a book about herself and she was super queer and I freaking love her. And she rocks a suit like none other. Awesome. All right. What's your, who's your second? Okay. Um, and the second is my sister who has always been tough. She's my older sister. Anytime I needed things, I would get teased a lot and she would always be right there. And when I came out twice, the first one, yeah, um, it was <laughs> through an email that my mom found. It was crazy. Um, and I was like 13. <laughs> um, the second time, like my sister, just the first and second time, she just, you know, has an amazing way of being super tough, but then just wrapping her arms around me and making me feel so safe and so special and loved. So. Oh, wow. Well, that's beautiful. And thank you for your time. And uh, at least we will talk soon. <laughs>